This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Business class, and um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy, we have some claims. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're turning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. Hey, can you look out your window right now? Yeah. Can you, can you see God about 4,000 feet, about 5 east of the airport right now? Looks like he's... Yeah, I see him. You see God? Is he descending for the building also? He's descending really quick too, yeah. Well, that's... 2,500 feet now. He just dropped 800 feet in like, a, like one, one sweep. That's, that's another situation. Who, what kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow. Another one just hit it hard. Another one just hit the worst side. The whole building just came apart. Holy smokes. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. Welcome to our program. Um, very interesting day and um, a very busy program and uh, morning here on WFAN. Of course, along at 7 this morning, as you've been hearing, I'm listening, a special from Entercom and Radio.com, that you're going to want to check out because it gets into a discussion about a number of interesting areas surrounding mental health and suicide. There's a bevy of guests in that program. So that's on at 7 this morning. We move into a discussion with a guest who has spoken with us a number of times previously, and we're going to be touching upon some aspects of mental health in our discussion, appropriately enough, with Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, um, which is an organization that we'll talk about in our discussion. He's a clinical forensic psychologist. Uh, First of all, it's nice to have you join us again on our program. Good morning, Dr. Huber. Well, as usual, thank you for having me on, Bob. I really appreciate it. Let's begin this discussion with, you know, here we are two days from today is September 11th. And I've said on the air many times that I hate to use the term anniversary uh, in association with these annual um, recognitions of what took place September 11th, 2001. But that day is a very solemn one. When you think of the impact from a trauma standpoint of September 11, 2001, in 2018, how do you explain that? Well, when we look at at 2018 and this event... I think you're right. I don't like calling it an anniversary either. 
th- this event that didn't just affect New York City. It didn't just affect the United States. It affected the world. And it shut the world down. We all stopped and, and, uh, you know, it, it scared everyone. And, and we thought, wow, if they can do this to New York, they can do it to anybody. And I, at the time I was in South Florida and I mean, we had kids panicking in schools. We had huge mass, mass gatherings of these students we we basically stopped teaching school and we started taking care of their mental health in groups the size of schools you know a thousand students in this school well they're all in the the common areas we're sitting down their mental health professionals along with me you know it wasn't just me it was every everybody was there and that's what we dealt with today those people are you know living their lives and we we stop we take that minute that moment to relive that and think about what happened and people are going through post-traumatic stress disorder Uh, this is something that you don't have to be at the exact site to experience because the whole thing is that there's trauma and it created trauma in this in this world not just in the United States, and uh, we we are suffering with it because we start thinking, what else is going to happen? You know, it's it's nine eleven again. What you know is this going to be a target date? Are they going to come after us? Is somebody going to do something crazy like that? And, and I we think, all hold our breath. I think it's only natural, in a way, for people to wonder that, especially this year. And I, there's a side of me that hates to do what I'm about to do, but it's been on my mind for months. September 11th, 2001 was a Tuesday. Well, guess what? Same thing this year. Um, so any time that that date falls on a Tuesday, for many of us, it's a time where you almost can't help but shift back mentally to what took place in 2001. But my question to you, I guess, is when we talk about trauma, talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because that's become um, a term that is in widespread use now in this country and around the world. Who is it that can get PTSD? You know, we used to just hear this used with people who had been through um, combat. Well, when when you look at PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you've experienced trauma, you potentially could get post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you think about it, when, for example, I, I, I go to court, I'm in court this Tuesday, uh, and I go and I meet with people who are involved in rapes or physical assaults where they almost die. All of those are traumas. And a rape victim typically 
when I, when they come to see me because the world's falling apart, their diagnosis more often than not is post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, it doesn't mean everybody who gets raped is going to experience that. Some people handle things a little differently. There are certain situations, certain certain issues that are associated with that. But that is a trauma. And a lot of a lot of people who get assaulted like that, that's what they go through. A lot of people, you know, I, I have a good friend who was a, held up a gunpoint, and uh, he ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I have another person, another friend of mine who had the same thing happen, but he overcome the the assaulting you know person, the perpetrator, and he actually experienced the PTSD as well, even though he over overtook the individual and uh, he actually did it through martial arts and he stopped doing martial arts because he was reliving that event. Uh, It was very traumatic for him. So any kind of trauma at all, sexual assault, physical assault, uh, being in a car accident, uh, a sporting injury, you know, anything like that can trigger post-traumatic stress disorder. And it started, I mean, we have, we have research and evidence on this all the way back to the civil war. We have it documented. So it's something we have dealt with for a long period of time. And, uh, it's, it's amazing how that keeps coming back. You know, at one point we call it shell shock because Mm -hmm. we only thought you could get it in battle. And we found out that that's not true. Well, what kind of tips do you have for dealing with traumatic events like 9-11? Right. When you have traumatic events, if you are physically safe, you're not, you know, injured from a traumatic event, or if you're coming upon uh, uh, the uh, annual event time or date, one of the things that I I recommend we do is to actually do some physical exercise. Get outside, go for a walk, go for a run, go for a swim. Uh, You know, I I used to be trained as as a swift water rescue person, you know, with floods and things like that. And uh, one of our first episodes, you know, that we trained for was how to deal with that. And the first thing it is after the event is don't ignore the fact that this is going to be stressful. In fact, you're not allowed to continue working unless, you know, absolutely, you know, just a continual event. We had to stop and do physical exercise, go swim a mile and then sit down and talk with other people at that moment. Um, those are good things to this day. Stop, stop, go for a swim, go for a run, go lift some weights, you know, do something physical. It's amazing what we do neurochemically when we exercise. Our body releases serotonin and other neurotransmitters that help us stay focused and, and hold ourselves together. So it is definitely, uh, one of the first things I have somebody do, go for a walk, go for a run, go for a jog. As long as you're safe at that moment, that's one of the first things I recommend you do. Second thing is 
take a moment. Don't be afraid to take a deep breath, hold it in, exhale, and do this several times slowly for, say, a count of three on the inhale, count of three on the exhale. Uh, extend that out to four or five. If you can go to six, do six as well. And do that three or four times. And go back to your normal routine, what you normally do at that point. You know, if you normally get up at six o'clock in the morning, get up at six o'clock that day. Right. Don't stay in bed because your body's going to say, hey, what's going on? This is not normal. Something is wrong. Exactly. We're going to take a pause in our discussion with you, Dr. Huber. Dr. John Huber is our guest on our program on The Fan this morning. I'm listening. An intercom radio special on mental health and suicide follows at 7 this morning here on The Fan. It is a huge day of programming on WFAN, and as a matter of fact, in the discussion that we're having on uh, mental health topics here, if you want to uh, join us, uh, you can. We're talking about 9-11 PTSD as well. Uh, WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666 is our phone number. We're talking with Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health. As I mentioned earlier, he's a clinical forensic psychologist and he's joined us before on our program. For those who don't know, how do you explain what mainstream mental health is all about? Mainstream mental health is a nonprofit organization that's there to try and destigmatize mental health issues, mental health uh, problems that people suffer, as well as you know some things that we don't always think about as mental health problems, such as uh, drug addictions and/or the occurrence of traumatic assaults to the brain, like traumatic brain injury, car accident, those type of things. And uh, the belief is that that we're so afraid of it and the mythology behind mental health issues that uh, uh, it's keeping us as, as a culture, as a species, from dealing appropriately with it and preventing a lot of what's happening. For example, Childhood cancers in the in the 80s, the early 80s, you had a 15% survival rate. We as a society in medicine started doing research, and we found out that there's a lot of early signs and symptoms. And today, those same childhood cancers have an 85% survival rate. And, uh, yeah, it's a generational thing, but you got to start sometime, and I'm out there trying to do that today. Some people may wonder when we talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, we hear an awful lot about it, but unless you experience this firsthand yourself or perhaps know someone who does, you don't maybe know the real impact of this. How long, or is there even an answer to this as to how long it really lasts? Well, if you don't get treated, you can live with it the rest of your life after the traumatic event. You know, the research shows that about 4% of children between the ages of 13 and 18 experience post-traumatic stress disorder in their life. Uh, In general, about 3.5% of the U.S. population, the adult U.S. population, experience post-traumatic stress disorder every year. And uh, it is a real event. Uh, 
about 8 million people every year have to deal with and, and go through and deal with that trauma. And if we look at 9-11, that is a very specific and acute problem. And some of the researchers saying that, that uh, as high as 17% within the first two months after 9-11, 17% of our population was experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And that includes reliving the trauma, doing uh, activities to try and protect yourself by avoiding certain things that remind you of that trauma. And then what in the military we often talk about uh, hypervigilance, and that includes usually being in an increased arousal state, higher blood pressure, uh, rapid breathing, muscle tension, uh, as well as even physical signs like diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting that, are, that can be associated with that heightened level of, of arousal. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people probably also experienced was that heightened sense of um, arousal, in some cases anxiety, may have been present the first time that they flew after 9-11. And, and, and listen, there are people who, to this day, will not get on an airplane because Correct. of some of the fear they have from 9-11. And having that phobia about planes, you know, we always hear, oh, it's the safest mode of travel. And statistically, it still is, but it doesn't mean that you don't get on that plane and you don't think, oh, is this the day? And, uh, you know, you hit a little turbulence and you're like, oh, no, and then everything smooths out. Uh, but you can still go through that trauma and relive that whole event with that little bit of turbulence that causes the plane to be a little bit of bumpy. And uh, it can bring that fear right to the surface in an instant. Well, one of the things you also had after 9-11 was people were in such a vigilant state that... You know, there were people who said when they went to fly, they also went literally prepared to do whatever they had to do to protect themselves and their fellow passengers. So that exactly. if they thought there was somebody who was trying to take over the plane, you know, their desire was to take that person or persons out, literally. Exactly. And there were several incidents since then on planes where people have kind of been that uh, posse or vigilante mentality and uh, have held passengers down and kept them from doing things, and, and planes have been detained and rerouted. But those, fortunately, are getting fewer and fewer away, and we do have air marshals that are flying anonymously on planes, and we don't know which planes they're on. That continues to this day. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that are happening. You know, as much as we may complain of TSA, they're out there looking and doing their job. Uh, there, there are ways that we as society are are coping. And you know, you plan on being at the airport three hours early because you want to make sure that you get to your plane on time. But you also want to make sure that everybody is safe and. Uh, that's that's what we do. Yeah, you know, you yeah. said this earlier, and, you know, at the time, 
I, I thought about it and thought, well, that really is true. This changed, you know, it not only changed New York and Washington and, you know, that area out in southwestern Pennsylvania where uh, Flight 93 <laughs> crashed. Um, this changed the country. This changed the world. I mean, this, this, things are drastically different. I mean, stop and think about before 9-11, there were times where – this seems like an old concept now – where somebody would leave home racing to make a plane as opposed to now where you're racing to get there three hours early. And singles used to take their loved ones to the airport, and they would go all the way up to the gate. They'd watch them board. They'd sit there until the plane pulls away from the boarding gate right? and uh, watch watch their loved ones take off. Now you can't even get inside the, the terminal if you don't have an active ticket. So, it, yeah, it's changed our culture. It's changed the world. And then we have, you know... Events, for example, you take the the U.S. Open going on here in New York. Um, yes. The, the news reports have put this information out, so I'm not divulging a secret in any way whatsoever. Basically, there's about 300 members of New York City Police Department who are um, protecting people at the Open and guarding mm-hmm. it from a security standpoint. And there, you know, there's phenomenal number of people who are going and witnessing this event, which obviously, again, is worldwide in terms of its importance and scope and significance. Um, This has become commonplace that there is security. I mean, stop and think also, we didn't have this term homeland security. (laughs) You know, all of these things changed and changed drastically. It did. It changed every sporting event you go to. You know, you see somebody acting erratically, and you start thinking, what's going on with that person? Mm-hmm. Not, oh, they've had a few beers, just relax, you know. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't relax, and probably correctly so. I, I want to ask you about um, treatment with PTSD, but just let me mention, too, the fact that you know, we're talking with Don, Dr. John Huber on our program here on The Fan, and he is with us for our show, which is from 6 until 7 this morning. I'm listening, and Intercom Radio Special is coming along at 7 uh, here on The Fan. You want to join us in our discussion, you can. We're talking about um, 9-11 PTSD uh, rates, um, the effects of trauma. If you're someone who has experienced some of this, you want to share in our discussion uh, as well, or perhaps ask a question, you can. Um, Dr. Huber is always kind enough to uh, answer listener questions. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. Now, when we talk about PTSD and effective ways of approaching this in terms of treatment, where do we begin? <laughs> well, typically, you know, we, we suggest you start with a mental health professional, psychologist, or psychiatrist to appropriately diagnose the post-traumatic stress disorder to make sure it's not something else going on. And once that happens, we usually recommend psychotherapy, uh, medication, 
And uh, oftentimes, if you want the best results, we recommend both. And it, it, it helps you deal with and treat the situation. You know, we typically, medication-wise, they look at antidepressants, uh, anti-anxieties, medications, uh, mood stabilizers. Even sometimes some people's situation is so bad that we need to use some antipsychotic medication to keep our reality testing and our and our our reality gauges intact because we're so fearful sometimes. Um, I've even seen people who've been on uh, certain blood pressure medications to help deal with the anxiety associated with it. Um, there's medications to help with nightmares because one of the recurring things you have is reliving the event through nightmares. Uh, and you can do that in a waking state even. It's so powerful. But what we find for for longer lasting change, in fact, the VA since 2008 now, the Veterans Administration, has been using a treatment involving ketamine. Uh, and what we actually do at my clinic is we, we do what we call ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And ketamine uh, is a type of hallucinogenic medication that's often used in emergency medicine. And uh, it allows us to talk right with the person without any kind of filters and things that we normally use to protect ourselves and our what we call ego integrity. For example, if you have someone who is an alcoholic, but they're getting all their bills paid and they're going to work and all that kind of stuff, oh, I don't drink that much. You put up on all these excuses. When you take that, that medication, the ketamine, a lot of those, in fact, most of those defense mechanisms are gone and they start saying, yeah, I drink way too much. I drink this and that. And, and I had all this, you know, alcohol this past month. And whereas without the ketamine, they're, they're even essentially lying to themselves in that situation and trying to, to deny what's actually going on. And the VA has had an amazing amount of success with ketamine assisted. Uh, therapies for our veterans. And uh, out of that, the last 10 years of data they have, we, we've found other advantages to using ketamine for other psychotherapy issues. But uh, that's primarily what's being done. There's another technique using EMDR, which is eye, sensitivity, or eye desensitization and movement uh, retraining. And uh, it is Another way to kind of reset the brain and allow you to get get by or get through that that trauma associated with the post traumatic stress disorder, that reliving of events. Uh, in regular therapy, we tend to use cognitive behavioral. You can also use exposure therapy, like we do with regular phobias: afraid of getting on an elevator, afraid of driving in traffic, that type of stuff. Uh, a lot of times we are able to benefit the patient by having their family come in and do family therapy so everybody learns how to respond and react to that individual when they're having an attack. And then group therapy, when we get other people who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, we sit down and work together and people are amazed that they're feeling at that moment like they're the only person who's ever experienced this, yet when they get into group therapy, they realize that they are not 
the only person experiencing it, and that can be very reaffirming for them. Dr. John Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health. More with him as we continue this Sunday morning. You want to check out I'm Listening because it's a good discussion on topics of uh, mental health and uh, suicide. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to follow up on when you were talking to Dr. John Huber, who is our guest on our program this morning, uh, talking about ketamine. And as you're talking about the use of ketamine and approaching um, PTSD and trauma, uh, depression, the natural question that comes up, Anytime somebody's talking about a medication or a treatment approach, what are the side effects? The side effects for ketamine? Um, well, while you're taking the ketamine itself, what happens is you actually have an altered state of consciousness. Now, in the clinic where we do it, we never leave the individual alone. They're always with a licensed medical professional and or mental health professional. And uh, they're with you the whole time. You get elevated heart rate, elevated blood pressure. In fact, we monitor and keep them monitored during the whole treatment and induction. We uh, we monitor their heart rate, their blood pressure, as well as some certain cases. We look at brainwave activity, heart rate, heart rhythm patterns, and uh, we use all of that to gauge. Uh, their level of safety and whether we need to terminate or uh, whether it's actually being therapeutic for them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I want to talk with you about, and this is something that's going to be addressed in this program that's following ours this morning, this uh, special mm-hmm. from Intercom, on mental health, because it's it's really a, a national discussion that is being held and it's very important because uh, they're approaching this from a lot of different angles. One of the things they're talking about there is this whole stigma uh, associated with talking about mental health. And to, I'll be very honest with you, frankly, I expected more of our listeners to be part of this discussion this morning uh, on this topic, especially you know, mentioning the uh, fact that this commemoration of 9-11 is a couple of days away. But again, you know, at times people don't like to talk about um, mental health issues. Why are we so reticent to talk about this? I mean, haven't we sort of gotten past some of this? Well, on a rational point perspective, yeah, we, we, we understand, uh, especially as individuals, this, but there are cultural indoctrinations that are in place. And we're not just talking about ethnicity and, you know, uh, people from from other countries. It's part of, for example, the culture of the military that, you know, if you have any kind of mental health issues, you are somehow broken and you're not safe and you're a detriment to your your peers. And it's looked down upon and actively, uh, you know, monitored. I, I've dealt with so many veterans, and, you know, even today, this past week in the hospital, you know, I get new patients, and I walk in there, 
And, you know, I'm, I talk with them for a while and I go, okay, you know, here's their diagnosis. And I, I say, you know, I believe you're depressed. And they immediately get upset and, and say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. And I go, well, you know, you, you've been in the hospital for, in this case, it was three weeks and he doesn't have any signs that he'll be getting out anytime soon. And I go, you know, you've been in the hospital for three weeks. Uh, you're, he goes, well, yeah, that might make somebody feel down in the dumps, but I'm not depressed as he's crying while he's telling me this. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, it, there's this fear that somehow this is going to destroy your life and uh, people aren't going to trust you anymore. You're going to, you know, not, they're going to take your money away. I've had patients tell me that they couldn't have a diagnosis because they were afraid that somebody in the hospital was going to go take them and put them into a mental health facility and keep them from being able to, to live a healthy, normal life once they get out for their medical problems. And uh, that's not the case. Uh, in some of the third world countries that I've, I've been able to work with, people, people will hide family members who have things like intellectual deficiencies, like we used to call mental retardation and things like that, because they believe that they're being cursed by, by God for something they did wrong. And it's not just that child. The fear is that they're cursing the whole family and they want their other children to get married and go have kids and things like that. Because if the town or village knows that one person has this cognitive impairment, they're going to believe that all the family members are cursed and they're not going to be able to have a family in their life and things like that. It, it is pervasive throughout every facet. You know, you, you have somebody who has stress at work and they're afraid to go get help because their boss finds out they're going to be, you know, they're going to lose their job or taken off of, off of a, a case or something that they're working on that they've worked hard on and don't want to lose access to. But the reality of it is, you know, there are times in everybody's life when all the dominoes line up and you just kind of feel crushed by that pressure. We get help when we get a cold. We go, we break an arm, we go see a doctor. Why do we not do that? And why are we afraid to talk about it? Well, does it get... When, does it get when into, we have emotional problems, yes. Get into... Um... I mean, is what you're saying also a way of basically saying we have issues with vulnerability? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Because nobody wants to be, or most people don't want to think of themselves as being, quote, unquote, vulnerable. That's true. That's true. And if you think about that vulnerability, that's exactly what happens, for example, when we get the flu. Mm-hmm. Our immune systems are vulnerable to it. And we go and we get a shot and we hope the researchers have done their job and now we are less vulnerable to the flu. Um, and, uh, you know, I recommend that that people go and see a mental health professional. You go to a dentist when your teeth are fine, twice a year usually, but we never go to a mental health professional. So when you do have a problem, you know somebody that you're not starting a new relationship with. I think a lot of the problems with going to talk to somebody is you don't know who this person is and they're a stranger. So I think 
it behooves us to build a relationship with someone like a therapist, uh, a social worker, a counselor. Uh, and if your world continues to go fine and everybody's happy with everything and you're doing well, it doesn't mean that you can't benefit from that therapist because when a friend comes over to you and says, man, this is what's going on in my life and, you know, things are falling apart, you can go, hey, I know this guy, as opposed to, well, let's see if we can find a therapist. You know, and it, it it's an advantage and a tool that we should be using all the time. And, you know, you go see a therapist once a year just to check in and make sure your perceptions of reality are are grounded. You know, it, it's not going to do anything but reaffirm your reality. But if you're having a hard time and you go meet that therapist, uh, they can go through coping strategies and how you deal with your, your problems on a day-to-day basis. And it can be so beneficial for us that uh, I think we're losing ground as a society because we can benefit from it so much. What is the key to something you alluded to in that answer, this idea of building a relationship? What's really key, key to <laughs> that? Well, that, that's part of it. In fact, uh, there's lots of research that's out there saying the most important part of the psychotherapeutic relationship or, or process is the actual relationship you have with your therapist. You know, are you are they able to connect with you? Are you able to connect with them? Are, are you able to not be fearful and tell them your innermost thoughts and feelings that you may not even be able to tell your spouse? And, you know, the reality of it is our friends and family know more about us than we always want to, want to let on. In fact, uh, you know, that's why your brother can walk in on Thanksgiving Day and say one word and ruin the whole rest of the weekend for you because they know where your buttons are. They know that. So why not have somebody who knows who you are who can actually help you not blow up at your brother when he says that word and learn to deal with those types of everyday occurrences and make us more resilient. In fact, uh, most individuals who deal with mental health issues, they talk about, you know, being depressed and what else do we talk about? Well, we talk about resilience, your ability to overcome adversity, trauma, uh, those little things in life that just get in the way and keep you from being who you can be. And those are all benefited through having that relationship with your therapist. What about situations where someone is dealing with and having to try to overcome adverse feelings in terms of anger? Well, that's an interesting thing. Anger oftentimes is actually depression turned on your yourself and you get upset with yourself and you start looking for uh, reasons to to be angry at other people to maintain what we call that ego integrity we were talking about. I believe I'm a good person. So, you know, the problem isn't me. It's, it's this person I'm working with here. And uh, I need to, I need to do something about that. So what we find is, Anger oftentimes is 
actually a reflection of some sort of depressive symptomology going on inside. You're threatened by that individual or those people for certain reasons. And that oftentimes is is part of the depression that, that we're suffering with. And getting help, you know, anger management teaches you not to direct that anger to other people, teaches you not to blow things up. But psychotherapy can help you work through that anger and the depression associated with it and get on and, and realize that the only thing you can really control in your life is how you react to the world as it happens to you. Otherwise, everything else is out of our control. We can't make somebody, you know, anybody who's got a kid knows they can't make their kid do their homework. Mm -hmm. They can make them sit there in front of the book and stare at it and be upset, you know, but you can't make them do it unless they choose to do it themselves. Dr. So. John, Dr. John Huber is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health on the web, by the way, at Mainstream Mental Health. That's all as one word, dot O-R-G. He's a clinical forensic psychologist, our guest in uh, this hour of our program on The Fan this Sunday morning, talking about 9-11 PTSD rates and providing some good and useful information as well. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing the information that you did, uh, Dr. Huber. Wonderful discussion as always. And certainly have a nice day, too. Well, along at 7 this Sunday morning, as you've been hearing and we've been mentioning, is a special presentation that comes our way from Intercom and Radio.com, entitled, I'm Listening, and You Should Be. I know I will be. The discussion is on mental health and suicide. An important discussion. We will see you next Sunday morning. Have a terrific day, everyone. Thank you for joining us this Sunday morning here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.